We're holding them for two, you know, for, for Mel's guests, so I hope they come. Okay, shall we start to get ready? Okay. I'm Pamela Pierce. I'm the events coordinator for Penn American Center, and um, I've done about 15 of these, I guess, 15 out of the 20 that have been done, and they're always exciting for me. Um, I never know what's going to happen, and none of you do either, so we'll find out. First, I'd like to thank Anne Carnita Quinlan, who owns this really beautiful bookstore, for her ongoing generosity to us. Um, she just says, tell us when you want to come, and we come, and her marvelous staff is at our disposal. So after this, we will have a little reception at the front, and it's time to chat with the introducers and the new writers and friends and staff and whomever else. And we hope you will join us for that. So that's, that's the business part of it. The format of the evening will change a little bit from what you, not the format, but the order. Quincy Troop will be number one, then John Guare <laughs> would make his introductions, followed by Lawrence Joseph. <clears throat> Many wonderful things have happened as a result of these evenings. People have met the agent that they've been looking for. They've gotten published. <laughs> it's true. It's happened many times. It's true. It's absolutely true. They've gotten published, etc., etc. So let, let's see what happens as a result of the next hour and a half, okay? So, Quincy, are you ready? Now that I've made you laugh. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to uh, thank Pamela for inviting me to, to invite someone and uh, to introduce them uh, in a sensitive. It did take me a long time because of the fact that um, uh, when I started to teach uh, well, at Columbia's graduate school, I came in contact with a lot of really very good poets and writers there. And, uh, but one day, uh, <clears throat> uh, I think it was 1987, uh, I walked in my class and um, there was this very quiet person there in class, very quiet, <laughs> sitting down, and uh, didn't say much. But she would always turn in these very, I thought, uh, extraordinary poems. And they were just really extraordinary. And <clears throat> And it kept getting more and more extraordinary uh, as time went on. And I mean, I'm not saying that. I, I mean, I felt that way. Um, <clears throat> we took some for the magazine, and then I then it's beautiful to see someone start to move out and send their work, and, the, and you pick open up a magazine, and the work is moving out, and and the work is getting better, and and that's what happened with uh, Catherine Bowman, or we call her Kathy Bowman, uh, who is uh, born in El Paso, Texas. And she lives in New York City. And her work has appeared in the Paris Review, The Best American Poetry, 1989, River Sticks, Big Wednesday, Soho Square, and others. And she has an MFA in writing from Columbia University and was the recipient of a 1990 New York State Foundation for the Arts Fellowship in Poetry. And uh, I don't like to say too much about people's work or say what it is, because I think the work speaks for itself. Uh, without me trying to explain it, and I think her, her work will, 
will speak for itself. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Catherine Kathy Bowman. King Arthur, and it's about uh, early experience, early religious experience as a child. And King Arthur was the name of my uncle's belt. So, <laughs> so King Arthur, Uncle Mitch, Mitch Mitchell had a belt so long and powerful it could go to work for him when he was tired. That belt could wrestle down an angel. You know the one on page 56 of the Children's Living Bible? <laughs> Even though their house was small, I think it had a closet all its own. It was that strong. Brilliant, too. It had eyes, too. Eyes that could, when called upon, tell just who had lied, cheated, arson, greed, or thieved. Exactly who had sniffed whose and put a finger where just who in fact would be written in the book of life or death. It could, it was a fact, send us all straight to hell with the smell of bacon fat and sulfur vapor. You can bet your bottom dollar it was a thrashing from King Arthur that burned little Mitchie's hair such a violent shade of red. That poor soul had about a million sinful freckles. Pecas is the word in Spanish, but how we loved his evil ways. We swore we saw the belt, King Arthur, slide into the moonlight and crawl across the border into Juarez. Listen to that screech. The king is coming home now and he's looking for someone to lick. From the branches of the only fruit tree on the block, the belt with court of giant June bugs kept the watch. We couldn't get those peaches that we craved. But that was all before the day Mitch Mitchell got laid off from his shift at Standard Oil. That night, my Auntie Vaughn, sweetest one, hit the stereo. She cracked open a fifth of 50 proof. Son of a gun, we're gonna have big fun down on the patio. <laughs> the moon fell in the sky like a cultured pearl in a curvy bottle of prell. Somewhere in the house, King Arthur recoils on the shelf. Next poem, I'm gonna read four more. It's called um, Meat and the, oh, I changed the name, sorry. It's called Dove at Sundown, and it's about a day I spent at a friend of mine's ranch, which is so big, you would not even believe. It's so huge. Um, <laughs> there's a caliche pit not far from here where the dove at sundown go to drink. I'm told to camouflage myself in shades of live oak, scrubby cedar, and mesquite. On the way, we break to scrutinize a mess of turkey roosting in a draw, a dry riverbed that takes the rain and thunderstorms. The pickup butts us through the bump gates. Then we pass molasses licks, troughs of sticky sorghum for black angus and goats to tongue. The horses are neck rainers. To steer one, touch the reins against her neck. Bitter weed, cows bloat on those sour leaves. Spike a white-tailed deer with deformed horns, the exotics, Saika and Fallow, 
deer imported from another continent who wandered down in search of food and water from the big game ranches to the north. Here the sky's your basic working blue, the ground's a sturdy stack of two by four, and there's oil, big pockets of natural gas and the oil from the sheared angora. 30 years of stuffing greasy mohair into burlap bags has made that withered goat man's hands as soft as little girls. Earlier, while floating in a cow tank, we sipped on lukewarm margaritas and watched stealth bombers out for test flights. Slow and prehistoric petroglyphs of winged jaguars come to life. Now at the pit, it's nearly dark. In a bush, we sight a rattlesnake skeleton intact. The heat's alive and layered, body heat, fever heat, blood heat. The trick to killing dove is to anticipate where they'll fly and shoot in that blank space. We clean the dove by headlight. First you twist its head off like a bottle cap. The thumb and pointer finger are used as hooks to pull out guts in any shot. I'm surprised how warm they are inside. Not at all like grocery packaged meats. We marinate the birds in cheap Bordeaux and stuff each one with a jalapeno. Um, the next poem is a meditation on X, and it's called Mr. X. All my exes live in Texas. <laughs> so the country song says, and no excuses, it's mostly too, true for me too that that spade-shaped extra big state with its pyrites, cotton lints, and ruby reds holds the crux of my semi-truck. I've never had any kind of luck, deluxe, super hijinks, born to be unhappy. If it ain't broken, don't fix it, loves. For example, there was the snake-bit mudlogger who fixed his cell forever diving off that hex bridge, and that foxy ex-dealer who imported exotic birds. He pumped me up with his deluxe stuff. The salesman who felt so guilty for the wide-eyed excuses he told his wife that at the Big Six Motel just outside Las Cruces, he spent the afternoon hunched over Exodus, bemoaning the sin of extramarital sex. <laughs> and the harmonica player, his mouth organ could extract an oily bended blues. On sticky nights, we'd hit the 12th hole pond with a fix of Dos Equis and a hit of ecstasy. And I'd wrap my legs around his lanky crux as moonlight cut through the water like a giant x-ray, his honer axe glistened in and out. <laughs> And then there was the feckless shrink, no excuses for his fixations, the tax man, the cute butcher from the deluxe, the kelum dealer, the defrocked priest. So what if my mother was a deluxe lush, my father Baptist and weak? I can't blame them. I was born just extra affectionate. <laughs> Don't ask about the abortions, and it's hard to make excuses for the time I spent holed up with the Porto Can Tycoon my friends fixed me up with. <laughs> or the Mexican sculptor who made cathedral-sized onyx X's, twisted crucifixes. Art, he quoted Marx, was history at its crux. <laughs> then there was the PhD who took me to Peru and showed me crux, the Southern Cross, Centaurus, Musca, Vela, Lupus, and another deluxe equatorial constellation that I forgot. For fun, I ascribed each sparkly X a name and date, so now I have a star chart in memoriam to each of my extraordinary heavenly bodies. 
But in my dream last night, the stars were fixed on stacks of pages, pica asterisks to indicate omission, footnotes, excuses, explanations. I stood there, Adonia Giovanni, accused with no excuse. Now in exile, I journey through the sticks with Mr. X on our boat, the Crux Criticorum. I wear an aqua slicker, he a sharkskin suit. He's nonfiction, never incognito. We've got our sextant and spy manual open on our deluxe waterbed. I can just make out the tattoo above his boxers in this extra dark, and there's the curve of his back. Now we'll break the code and go beyond X. This poem is called Meat and Secrets. The girl is 16 and her mother is having a series of affairs with men that have something to do with meat. A butcher, a cattle rancher, a beef wholesaler, a packing plant manager. They're big ugly men, her mother says, so ugly they're beautiful. Behold the body and the blood of Christ who died so we could live. The girl is nine and keeps a portrait of Jesus in her closet. Each night, she sponges him down with pink cotton balls dipped in Gina Tay. Her mother, her mother teaches her how to pray. Run, Satan, run, they say together when the wolves and the woman in blue float by her window. On Sunday, the girl plays Pontius Pilate and washes her hands of the sin. The washing machine is broken again, and the girl and her mother are scrubbing the clothes. While they wash, the mother talks about the convent in Mexico where she grew up about the chapel filled with candles and the nun who washed her hands all day long. The mother says in the convent they had to wear sheets when they bathed because God's eyes are everywhere. The girl's father and Mr. Carr are drinking scotch by the pool. They are watching the girl swim. Mr. Carr follows the girl into the sauna. He lifts off the top of her bathing suit and rubs her flat chest. He asks the girl if it feels good. She says, yes, sir. He makes her promise not to tell. She promises and then tells her mother everything. Mr. Carr loses his job, but they do not call the police, and they do not tell his pregnant wife. The mother tells the girl a story. Once there was a panther loose on the streets. The cruel stepmother sent her stepdaughter out for bread and milk. Mother, mother, open the door. Did you get the milk, daughter? Please, mother, open the door. Did you get the bread, daughter? Then blood pours in under the door. Her mother has redecorated the bathroom. The walls are leopard skin print and the floors are carpeted in brown shag two inches thick. They've installed a shower massage attachment and the girl has her first orgasm. At the Assembly of God Pentecostal Church, ladies filled with the Holy Spirit lay on hands. Dixie Coon plays the electric guitar and her brother Tick plays the drums. After church, the girl and her friends go back home and lock the bedroom door. They read to each other from the New Testament. Gail Sweeney talks in tongues, and sometimes Lynette does too. Then they go into the kitchen and fix some sandwiches. Now the girl is 20, and the man her mother is living with has a long beard and wears a bear claw necklace. A few days before, they found a cow in the road that had been hit by a truck. They dragged it home and butchered it. Now they have enough meat in the freezer for a year. <laughs> the girl is 13 and she tells her mother she is worried about getting married. She is worried that she won't know what to do in bed. 
Her mother says, don't worry, your husband will teach you. Men want their women to be experienced. Her mother says, tell him it hurts a little when he puts it in. Her mother says, the key to beauty is to keep your innocence and eat plenty of avocados. A woman's hair is her crown and glory. Don't gossip, soon you'll know everyone's secrets. She says, control a man in bed and he's yours forever. The girl is walking by the leopard skin bathroom. Her mother pushes her in and locks the door. She says, pee in this jar. She says, pee in this jar immediately or I'm going to call an ambulance. The girl is six weeks pregnant and didn't know it. Her, mo her mother makes her father take the day off work and drive her to get the abortion. Her, mo her father looks strange sitting there in the black suit at the gynecologist's office. The girl's mother is calling from another state. It's Thanksgiving and she's crying. The man with the bear claw just dragged the turkey out into the front yard. He has shot four bullets into the raw bird and is now kicking it over and over. To stop him, the mother puts a cigarette out on her skin. Now the girl is 14 and she sees her mother naked for the first time. Her mother's nipples are white. Alchemy, her mother says, it's in your blood. We were chemists and metallurgists in the silver mines. Mystery, she says, it's everything. Now the girl is eight and she and a friend go down into the basement. They lock the door and play bomb shelter. They take off their clothes and smell and lick each other's bodies. They say they will stay in the bomb shelter until the war is over or forever. They say they will live off each other's excrement. <laughs> last poem is um, a portrait of the beef wholesaler that was mentioned in the last poem. <laughs> and it's called, Can You Tell Us Something About Him? Well, he can sell the whole dog, the long, the short, with all its parts, nothing missing, sliced and chunked. The bull, the bulk, the stem, the stalk, the hulk, canned chili, farm machinery, mixed nuts, insect spray, frozen gourmet stuff. Carries a styro cooler and stash of lucky clubs in the trunk. Has on occasion aced a player of great repute. No doubt likes the booze. Ate a lamb's eye once. Knows all the words to Darktown Poker Club by heart. Damn smart. Good joke teller. Sometimes land speculator. Not much for blood sports. So there he was, hunting quail 60 miles south of Pearsall where lizard smells spice the air and mesquite branches rise upward like lustral fists of fundamentalists ravenous for heaven. There he was, there it was, the hog I mean, the javelina dead in the clearing, a cloven-footed colossus mean as hell with its voluminous dead snout coiled into a dead smile, oily tusked and humped ready to dissolve into the next world. How'd it die? Don't know, weren't no bullet holes, trap gashes, broken bones, no sign of poisoning, disease, or tampering with by man or beast. And all around the cadaver stood a living halo of 15 quail, spelling up commotions of scratches and hoots and pecks, and everything else in a quail's power to rejoice in the death of a mortal enemy. Did he shoot? He didn't. Would you say he's an honest man? I would. What are his eyes like, pale and small, and his hands, smooth and freckled with tiny blonde hairs growing out of the knuckles? Thank you.
my name is John Blair, and I'm very happy to be here because the P in pen for playwrights isn't normally, isn't represented as strongly as, uh, as, as, we, as some of us would like it, but that's why it's terrific to uh, introduce two playwrights tonight. And uh, one is Elizabeth Egloff. I was working up at Yale last year doing a play up there, and uh, it was a wonderful class. And in it, there was uh, a remarkable uh, young woman named Elizabeth Egloff. And I've been, uh, her play was done at uh, the Louisville, uh, what's the name of it? The Humana Festival. Humana Festival, yeah. yes, in Louisville. And her play was done there. And uh, and I'm very, very glad to, uh, she did a brilliant Fedra. With one, I mean, she's a playwright who draws on classical themes and just reinvents them in, in today's, in our, as you'll see, in our life. Uh, Mel Shapiro, uh, every 10 years seems to have a new identity. He was one of the best directors in the American theater in the 70s and then in the 80s, directing from uh, West 4th Street to uh, Stratford. Uh, the Shakespeare Festival in Stratford. And uh, then in the 80s, uh, went to Pittsburgh to teach at Car to run Carnegie Mellon uh, Drama Department and to uh, take on his true life, which has always been that of a writer. And finally, in the 90s, he, in 1990, he is uh, beginning to live with his plays. And that's, I think, really inspiring and sensational. And uh, so it's a great, great pleasure to be here at this pen evening tonight to introduce. <coughs> Who should go first? <coughs> Flip a coin? Okay, alphabetic. Lady first, alphabetic. Okay. Okay, Elizabeth Agloff and then Mel Shapiro. Thank you. Okay. That's good. Great. Somebody yell if you can't hear me. Um, Mel and I both had the hardest time. Am I getting like feedback? I think I I'm in a rocket okay. here. Okay. Um, Mel and I both had the hardest time trying to figure out what the hell we were going to read. How are we going to read your half poem and make it work? And this section of scenes that I'm going to read for you are actually small, small sections of verse from Phaedra, a play that. I did up at Yale at the Winterfest in 1989 there. That's a series of new plays. And to really give the actors their due, because God help you, I'm not an actress and I will not try to act. Uh, it was performed by Patrick Kerr as the narrator. Lola Paschalinski played the nurse. Pamela Tucker-White played Phaedra. And the chorus were to four remarkable people, Bernard Cummings, Mary Mara, Susan Knight, and Joseph Fuquay. And Theseus was Earl Hyndman, but Theseus isn't going to be represented tonight, so. <clears throat> All right, this is a prelude. A group portrait, including a robin, huge, a sewing machine, singer, and the sound of a watch wrist ticking. This is the narrator. What is missing in this picture? This picture was suggested by a field and a bird lighting in the field. An umbrella opens it, under it a human figure. Does the bird suggest an umbrella or a man merely opening like an umbrella? The figure begins to turn, changing. 
Does the umbrella suggest a hunter? Or a dream merely about a hunter? Or this, a woman pushing a needle, pulling cloth, gently sewing a bird, a field, a mouth. What we have here is a picture of the Annunciation, or do we? This is a woman, and this is an angel. This was the light coming from the angel, stabbing her heart. Who knew, she cried, grabbing her hair, her mouth burning. Who knew? And the screaming, the awful screaming on a moonless night in a windless sky. What kind, I say, what kind of Annunciation is this? What house? What kind of people, if you can call them? At the bottom of the something, something stirs, something, blood, a message, a message. And then the play begins. We are turning east. Miles into the Mediterranean, a line, a paragraph of blue appears. This is a story of lovers, but lovers do not praise, they itemize. Blue trees, blue wind, blue the goat on the sea, blue the goat in the pasture. The same charred eyes, ditto mouth, the heart, above all the heart. Not Solomon's song or literature, only him, Hippolytus, in blue, dark blue, blue. The moon shifts to the mountain, the mountain shifts south to be nearer the sea, where fish throw themselves on the beach with desire. Remember Phaedra, remember Hippolytus, when the night of summer's drowned in our mouths, and azaleas burned in our hair, we are the light of moonlight. Once there lived a liberator who was king, and the king had a wife, and the wife was Phaedra, and the king had a son, illegitimate son, there's always one, usually ugly, this one was not. This one was named Hippolytus, and his mother was an Amazon, not Phaedra, but an Amazon in some god-awful jungle which made Hippolytus half king, half Amazon. But this was many years ago. I had just fallen off the turnip wagon. I was green as grass, and everything can't be my fault, can it? But I digress. As I was saying, the war raged on. Always there was a war in those days. Always there was something happening, and always whatever was happening was happening somewhere else. The king would send back memoranda, numbers of dead, numbers of wounded, numbers of revolutions. Always there is another revolution around the corner. We were so bored we bought a palace. Maybe not a palace. After all, there was a war on. Call it a villa. And the villa overlooked a valley. And in the valley there were hunters. And among the hunters there was one, Hippolytus, Cal Surprise. Hippolytus, the one who was torn by horses. But that comes later. We are still beginning. There are still horses, there is still a valley, and there is still Phaedra. This is scene one. Phaedra is on her daybed, and her nurse attends her. Phaedra, get me an umbrella. Nurse, I got you an umbrella. Phaedra, get me another umbrella. Nurse, we're out of umbrellas. <laughs> Phaedra, none of them work. Narrator. Ahead of me on the path, voices. I stumble toward them. I want to follow. What I have said was only the surface. I have said only what I was capable of saying. I want to say what I am incapable of saying. Phaedra. Remember last year when we climbed that mountain? Remember? And it rained. 
Remember the rain and the light that came with the rain? Nurse, I don't remember any rain. Fedra, there was a man standing on a rock. He was holding an umbrella overhead like he was waiting for a bus. Nurse, oh, him. Fedra, so we hid behind a bush and watched him watch a shadow crossing the valley, a bird falling to the earth, or was it a man with wings? Forever he stood there, his heart looking out of his chest at the sky, the valley, the yellow trees, looking at everything so hard I thought it would all together stop. Nurse, since when does it rain around here? It hasn't rained in years. Not only that, I'm getting sunstroke. Phaedra. Nurse. Nurse. Yes, dear. Phaedra. Oh, nurse. Nurse, let me help you. Narrator. Suddenly, out of nowhere, the wind blew a leaf. It landed on her lap. And then a leaf lands on Phaedra's lap. Phaedra. Look. Narrator. In this scene, actually, the chorus appears, but since they speak singly, what I'm going to do is just is just say chorus, and you may get the idea that there are single voices speaking. The narrator. Days passed. Every day, Phaedra would be brought outside. Then she would be brought inside. Then she would be brought outside. Then she would be brought inside, as if the weather could be changed as if the sun could be made less bright or the air less dry by going in or coming out. She even took to walking in her sleep. One night her secretary found her in the library. She was looking under a chair. The secretary, of course, was tactful. Chorus. Madam, 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 what are you looking for? Phaedra. I'm looking for a scale. Chorus. A scale? Phaedra. Yes, I'm looking for a scale. Chorus. Why are you looking for a scale? Phaedra. If I can weigh myself now, I can subtract it from what I usually weigh, and then I'll know how much it weighs. Phaedra starts out of the room. Narrator. She started out. Chorus. What weighs? Narrator. She started out. Chorus. What weighs? Phaedra stops. My soul, of course. Phaedra leaves. The chorus looks at itself. Narrator. Unnerving it was, walking in her sleep. Chorus. Not so unnerving. Perfectly natural. I do it all the time. We all do. Narrator. Well, that settles it, then. There's no problem here. Even if the queen is losing her mind and her husband is off in a revolution, if anything goes wrong, we'll still have Hippolytus. Chorus. The bastard. Narrator. The what? Chorus. The best. He's the best. We said he's the best. Narrator, and aren't we lucky? Chorus, the queen is losing her mind. Oh, no. Now, as we all sort of know more or less, Phaedra has a case of wicked bad mother love for her son, and she finally tells the nurse, and the nurse blows the secret to the son, and the son confronts her in what is one of the most vicious scenes ever. Um, and the son's basic problem with her is that she is this sort of out-of-control sexual female who had this is Phaedra's response to Hippolytus after he has called her on the carpet so to speak Phaedra now look at that 
Was that a bird or was it a man that fell into the ocean just now? I watched it flying overhead. It must have realized it had no business being there. Clouds and more clouds. How practical, practical we are when it comes to torture. You were saying, and what is your name? It seems you've been here forever and I still don't know your name. Hippolytus, I meant to say, who is your father and who is your mother that you should speak to me with such disrespect? Logic says it was your youth speaking, but it is unforgivable. It is unforgivable. And what is unforgivable? Logic does not need forgiveness. Logic is quick and to the point. Logic is invisible like art. It says Hippolytus has an apple, and if he subtracts an orange from the apple, how many apples does he have left? Why none? Because Hippolytus can cause an apple to devour itself from shame, to subtract itself from nature. Likewise, the orange. Therefore, there are no such things as apples. There are no such things as oranges. There is no use for beauty. There is no use for love. I take this knife and cut out my sex, and what do I find? Not flesh and blood, but light, rocking. I feel myself lying on a table somewhere on an endless summer day, and the flowers in this wallpaper are so beautiful and green, and the tulips draining in the sink, and I seem to have forgotten the head of where I am. Breathe way down, someone is telling me. Breathe way down. Close your eyes. Lean back and float. Remember, mother? Remember, sister? When the night of summers drowned in our mouths and the blood ran through the halls and rivers and collected itself in little pools at the bottom of the stairs, I told him, this is why you are not a man, I said. The screaming, you should have heard the screaming as they fed the children to the minotaur, and the blood rose about her ankles. The blood of children swept away our jewelry, and this is why we are not women, I said to my father, the dictator, and my sister, the dead. What kind, I say, what kind of country is this? Trees hardening with fruit, fish drowning in puddles, sun turning to paper. This is why we cannot love each other, I told him, one tyrant to another. We have devoured our sex. We have eaten our beauty. Hippolytus, Hippolytus, it is tea time at the palace, and I am sitting in the garden dipping my orange in vinegar and counting your days. This is a picture of Phaedra cursing Hippolytus, that name. When this you see, remember me. I was a single star on the horizon before you brought me down. Now at last I feel nothing, nothing, only soundless and very still, like the eye of a hurricane gazing north. My gray seas, your gray island, Ahead, the lights in your garden rippling. The first day we met, you told me you would never live past 30. I told you I was not a bad person. Clearly, you never understood how profound the situation. Thank you. This play is called uh, The Lay of the Land. It uh, has two characters, a husband and a wife. Uh, the action takes place in uh, two psychiatrist offices, uh, his and hers. Uh, you never do see the shrink, either shrink. Um, the action of the play is uh, these parallel therapy sessions. Uh, 
they're both university professors at the same university. Uh, he's in pre-Soviet literature. She's a filmmaker. Uh, she's in cinema studies. She started going to the shrink because she had this rash on her right hand. Well, actually, it turned out she suspects her husband of having an affair. Uh, the husband started to go to a shrink because he has this uh, intense obsession with a young graduate student of his. Uh, the wife uh, has hired a detective. His name is Carmine Facconi. Uh, to uh, find out all he can about the husband. Um, okay, but I guess that's all you need to know. Uh, the husband, each of them is talking to the doctor in, in separate spaces. Uh, he's dressed very hip and he carries a guitar in a case. Phone calls now. Oh, the girl's name is Muriel. Muriel left word with the department secretary she had to miss class. Like an idiot, I crossed some line, some border of all the strength, and called her back, demanding to know why she was getting bored with me. She laughed. She said I was just about the only person in the world she wasn't bored with. She couldn't come to class because she had a bad cold. I asked her if she'd like me to go to the deli and get her some chicken soup and a bagel. She said she would like that a lot, but didn't believe I'd do it. I told her I always brought my bimbo's chicken soup when they were sick. She laughed and said she'd be sorry to miss my last lecture on the, cha on the uh, last chapter of Crime and Punishment. I told her I was going to skip Crime and Punishment and go right to the idiot, the story of my life. <laughs> she laughed and said, wrong book, the story of your life is the possessed. <laughs> the knowingness of this girl sometimes frightened me. I haven't told you, have I? I'm taking guitar lessons, secret guitar lessons. Well, self-study, mainly. I practice in the car whenever I can get a secluded parking space. This man's music kills me. Hold your ears if you want. It's just still a little rough. And uh, he begins to, uh, to play and sing Joe Beam, Someone to Light Up My Life. Um, I found myself delivering a large container of chicken soup and a whole loaf of rye bread to her front door. She wore what I thought was a man's white terry cloth bathrobe, but she informed me one sex, one size fits all, and was amused that I was fishing for information about her non-academic life. The house was dark and cold. She said she had to be careful about her heating bills. She kept telling me how sweet I was for bringing the food and how she looked forward to having it for her supper. Being there made me awkward and silly because she really was ill. In the back of my mind, I had thoughts of bringing in the guitar and playing a song for her, but asked to use the john instead before I left. I wondered which of the soggy towels was hers. I actually smelled each one, trying to detect the odor of a male body among them. Barbasol shaving cream, but that didn't mean anything. I ransacked the medicine cabinet, checked the name on each prescription. Muriel Johansson, she, Alicia Bonners, a former student. I didn't know she lived there. Randy Tuttle, was that a girl or a guy? Pyrobenzamine, allergies. If I had time, I could check the bedrooms, look in the closets. <laughs> Wife, did I tell you he's going to a shrink? Carmen, find out. Husband, Muriel called to see if I needed anything. I, need, I noticed a couple of razors on top of the sink. One of them, a bick, looks suspicious. 
A man's comb with black hair and lint knotted the pit of my stomach. Wife, I wonder what he talks about. Husband, as I warmed up the engine of the car, Muriel came out barefoot onto the snow-covered porch, leaned on a post and smiled at me, waves of blue-eyed affection, hot oceans of love for me thawing the sub-zero morning. I felt so base, some omnivorous monster, sopping up all that girl's adoration while I tried buckling the seatbelt around my erection. Wife, maybe I can get in that office one day with Carmine, find a closet and film his sessions. Oh, I would love to do that. Husband, call later to say she spent the morning sinfully watching TV, saw an old James Stewart movie about an invisible rabbit, a puka actually. A puka is a good luck thing. She said its name was Harvey and I'm Harvey and I'd be her invisible good luck puka. I seem to be slobbering, am I? She now refers to me as a wabbit. Oh, yes, I forgot. I took the Bic with me. I have an old college friend of mine in police forensics. I'll send the razor to him to get a full analysis. Wife, I just charged up a lot of clothes. I'm talking in the thousands. I don't know if anything goes with anything else, but I do know one thing. I've got to get the gray out of my hair, and I'm ready for a makeover. And she takes off her coat and is wearing a very becoming designer suit. Like it? I had doubts, but the girl, sales girl convinced me. I don't have the right shoes, I know. That's the fucking trouble with buying. You have to buy so much just to get it all together. I'm having tea with Carmine this afternoon. He's giving me an update on the case. I hope he doesn't notice I'm not wearing the right shoes. Could you help me get this price tag off? Husband. She begins with, what's this? Wife. Simple enough question. Of course, he says, it's a razor. Husband. It's a razor. Wife, where'd you get it from? Husband, where'd you get it from? Wife, it was in your coat pocket. I almost severed my fingers on it. Whose is it? Husband, how would I know? Wife, somebody other than you put it there? Husband, must have thought my pocket was the trash can. Ha ha ha. Wife, what a disgusting thing to do. Husband, it's just a 20 cent bick. Wife, Matted with soap and hair, a student, you think? Husband, I guess so. Wife, bizarre, why? Husband, why what? Wife, why would one of your students put this thing in your coat pocket? Do they want you to cut yourself? Are you having problems with one of them? This is psychotic behavior. Husband, what's for dinner? Wife, you walk around with this gross thing in your clothing, someone's used bick, have no idea who put it there or why, and only concern about dinner. We're having my favorite, takeout. Husband, again, shit. Wife, you want home cooked, you cook it. Husband, I haven't the time. Wife, neither do I. Okay, I'll cook tomorrow. Husband, I'll cook tomorrow. Wife, you will, what will you make? Husband, your favorite, Domino's Pizza. Wife, oh, Harv, husband, what? Wife, I don't understand. Husband, what? Wife, suppose you looked in my handbag and saw a used razor. What would you think? Husband, I wouldn't think anything. Wife, you wouldn't think anything? Why? Are you brain dead or something? Husband, I think you were going off somewhere to shave your legs. Wife, is that what you were doing, going off to shave your legs? Husband, I don't use a bick. Wife, 
were you going off to shave someone else's legs? Husband, the deans, yes, and the presidents of the university. No women, only guys. Wife, you know, most people shave their legs in the shower. Husband, I don't. Wife, so this bitch just walked into your pocket nesting between chewing gum wrappers and, sorry to say, very old parking tickets. Husband, why were you searching my pockets? Wife, it's supposed to get cold this weekend. You're always losing your gloves. I wanted to see if you still had any from last winter since I'm going down to get the boys some. I wanted to know if you needed a pair also before I have to listen to you complain how you can't find anything. She's examining the razor. Hairy little bugger. Husband, you think it's a man? Wife, I'm not certain, but I would imagine. I'm going to take this to the campus police. Husband, oh, don't bother. Let me have it. Wife, why? Husband, let's just throw it away. I don't want to dwell on this. Wife, what's in your other pockets? Husband, you're being monomaniacal. Wife, empty your pockets and be careful. You might cut yourself. Husband, do you have visions of all sorts of foreign matter flying into my pockets? By this time, she was practically doing a police frisk of my trousers. Wife, I felt this triangular object. Husband, she digs in and comes up with it. Wife, what is this, Harve? Husband, I don't know. Wife, does your Harvey, does your doctor know you're walking around with all kinds of unaccountable objects stuck into articles of your clothing? What is it, do you know? Is it yours or was it placed there? Husband, it's a pick. Wife, oh, so it is, like for a zither. Who do you know who plays the zither? Do you think the person who put the bick in your overcoat is the same person who put the pick in your pocket? Why did I suddenly feel I was talking like a Dr. Seuss book? <laughs> Husband, I can't tell you how I wanted to grab her neck and strangle her right then and there, fulminate in my own kitchen. All I have that is private, unto myself alone, with the exception of picking my nose, is my guitar, and she dragged it out of me. I told her I was learning how to play and was keeping it a secret until the day I could sit down and amaze my friends. She thought it was great. Wife. Guess he's going to start serenading the bitch. Husband, when I told her I was trying to learn some Joe Beam, she almost cried because he's her favorite. Wife, serenading her with my favorite music and Brazil. Bad associations. Five years back, I almost completed what I thought would be my best film. And Oh, forget it. I really don't want to talk anymore about anything. Don't worry, I'll pay for the full 45 minutes. I asked him then and there if he was having uh, fooling around with someone. He looked at me in amazement and asked, wherever did I get such an idea? Oh yes, tea with Carmine. He grabbed my elbow at one juncture and said I was a beautiful woman wasting my time on nothingness. He said he would like to bite my mouth till my lips fell off into his Dubonnet. We laughed and laughed. His parting shot was, baby, what that hand of yours needs is a hot love affair. Do you think I waste my time on nothingness? Husband, Muriel called just to say she adored me. Big word, adored. Can we meet, I asked. She didn't think so, but she wasn't ruling it out. I shouted, not ruling it out. What are you talking about? Are we meeting or not? She said, I was the only thing in the world that mattered to her. I said, that's nice to hear, but can we get together? 
She said, what will we do if we get together? I said, I want to make love to you. She said, you don't want to make love to me, Wabbit. I said, I know who I want to make love to, and I want to make love to you. She said, no, you don't. I screamed, why are you telling me what, who, how, why I want to make love to? It became preposterous, and I don't feel like talking about it anymore. me to introduce a writer, uh, it didn't take me very long to uh, uh, come to the conclusion that I wanted to introduce Stuart Kalons. Uh, many of you may know Stuart's writing from his reviews, his literary reviews in the Village Voice and The Nation, and now his film reviews in The Nation, which I personally think are the best film reviews being written by anybody in the country. He's also now doing the American Notes for the Times Literary Supplement. He's done essays that have appeared in Ben Sonnenberg's Grand Street, uh, really, truly extraordinary essays, and his reviews have an essay, essayistic quality to them. What, uh, Stuart has many admirers of his writing. Uh, he's a writer's writer in many ways, and what many people don't know is that the intelligence and imagination that infuses his essays and his reviews is the imagination of a fiction writer. And a fiction writer, I would say, of the first order. I'd very much like to thank Penn for having me uh, here tonight uh, to introduce a writer, and I, with great pleasure, introduce Stuart Colmans. Thank you all for coming. Uh, can the folks in the back hear? Yeah. You sure? Yeah. All right, then. Uh, this is an excerpt from a novel, from uh, the first chapter of a novel. Um, imagine that it's the late 1880s. There is a boy named Vito, about 12 years old, on a train going to a place called Barlow, Kansas. Vito wasn't quite sure where Kansas is. They just put him on the train and he's going. Uh, Vito grew up in the Lower East Side in the most dark, crowded, involuted part of the Lower East Side. As the chapter goes on, you find out how he was taken from his family and put into the Orphan's Hall, which is even darker and more crowded and more involuted than where he's been living. That's where we're starting here. <clears throat> they put him to work with a pot of glue. From eight in the morning till six at night, he worked in the furniture shop. Other boys turned pieces of wood on the lathe. Vito glued them into place. They made armchairs, side chairs, ladder back chairs, and tables of all kinds. When Vito's joining work was slack, he pushed a broom or threw out the scraps, though he tried to avoid those tasks. The rooms in the orphan's hall were close. The glue made him dizzy. The first time, he had to sweep the floor. He took three steps and toppled over. Soon he got used to the fumes. He saw still newer boys teeter and fall. 
Even so, he did his job meticulously and tried never to get up from the bench. Meals came regularly, and twice a day the boys were put out into the yard, where they held fistfights and played craps. So Vito enjoyed his first few days. Only after a week did monotony strike. Cold shower, cold breakfast, bunk inspection, shop, and in the evenings half an hour of civics class. Vito soon ached to go somewhere, meet someone other than these boys, louts, all of them not worth knowing, even to learn something, outside the lesson of circle jerks. By the third week, his reputation was set. A loner with a chip on his shoulder, not entertaining enough to victimize, so better left alone. The days turned into narrow slots, painted uniformly gray. Only once did someone break the routine or try to. Aunt Sophia, having screwed up her nerve, came to visit. But she was part of the influence the hall was pledged to ban. They ordered her off, without informing Vito, and let his twelfth birthday pass unremarked. Sundays were the worst of all. Herded into an airless chapel, the boys listened, stupefied, to Bible texts and homilies, hour after hour of them, since that was the day's one lawful pursuit. Toward evening, the best behaved could go to the boys' shop, where they were allowed to buy mission tracts and cheaply bound copies of the more toothless classics. For this purpose, each boy received on Saturday a few cents from the wages he'd earned. The hall claimed most of this phantom pay to cover the upkeep of the boys. What little remained was held in trust, to discourage gambling and earn some interest for the hall. Vito, like most, pocketed the change. He could use it to buy cigarettes or rotgut wine when someone sneaked it in. One Sunday, a pinched young man appeared in the chapel, seated at the pastor's side, Whispered speculations passed through the room. When at last the newcomer took the pulpit, Vito saw he was not much older than the biggest of the boys. His wheat-colored hair was slicked back on his skull, and his eyes were full of Jesus. Grabbing one thin black lapel, he squinted around the room as if counting heads, then opened his lips. A frighteningly deep voice came out. Brothers, my brothers, I have been asked here this morning to share my story. It is, a t it is a tale which will, I hope, touch you very closely, now and in your future lives. Perhaps someday my story will in fact become your own. I cannot claim it will. My part is merely that of the messenger. You will hear, and your own hearts will decide. I have been asked to tell my story, and tell it I shall. But first... Let me ask, what do I mean by calling you brothers? Why do I presume? Surely we are all brothers in Christ. If I meant to say no more than this, I would still be testifying to the strongest bonds which man can know. But is there no nearer kinship between us? Can we recognize no familial ties? Indeed we can. For I was a boy such as yourselves. I too got my start in life here in the Orphan's Hall. I, too, sat where you are sitting and heard the words of another graduate of our humble shelter. I follow those words, as I hope you will follow mine. I stepped forth onto the path that he had shown, a path that has led me to the respectable station you now see, a place at one of our nation's most distinguished seats of learning, and the expectation of a prosperous future in which I may continue the good works to which I have been called. 
Is all this too much for you yourselves to hope, my brothers? And now you will understand how truly we are brothers. It is all too little. Listen to me, and learn that nothing is beyond the power of the Lord and the firm determination of an American boy. I, I am a boy of the New York slums. You would not know it now to look at me. Yet I spent my first years in penury in a dockside shack until my parents, lost to despair and rum, left me to an even harsher fate. Brothers, they abandoned me. Alone then, all alone, though scarcely more than a babe, I roamed the slums where I learned the tricks of the street arms trade. To lie, to steal, to gamble, to curse, to run toward evil companions but flee those good-hearted servants of the law who wanted only to ease my state. What would have become of me had I not been apprehended? Dear God, what would become of any of us? Yet the Lord must have had a plan. The Lord must have been reaching out, for I was caught, trapped like the wretched little animal that I was, and brought here to the orphan's hall. And then the struggle began in earnest. My brothers, it shames me now to say it, but I was stiff-necked. I rebelled. I kicked against the traces and overturned the discipline of the hall. Most of all, most shameful to tell, I tried to harden my heart. Someone had come to knock at my heart. Someone was speaking to me in a still, small voice. I think you all know who I mean. But I was a depraved, wild creature, given to the cravings of the beast, and I would not attend. Brothers, I rejected the greatest love and strongest aid the world has ever known. And then one day, a brother came to me, as I come before you now. He had none of the airs of your gentleman to the manner born. His origins were as lowly as my own, as lowly as those of one other boy, born in a manger and raised to the carpenter's trade. But he had made something of himself. The richest man in New York City would not have scrupled to shake his hand. Boys, I could recognize myself in that man. I could see in him what I was and what I might become. And that very day, I resolved to start a new life. For a new life was just his offer. He had come to tell us of life out in the West, where the Orphans Aid Society, our great benefactor, had found excellent places for many of us. The West, who can resist its call? The West, land of open skies and endless plains. The West, where a man can make of himself what he will, free from the corruption of city life. Out in the West, the larders overflow with the riches of the land. There's always room at the table for another plate, while a second helping waits hot on the stove if you can polish off the first. And what do you have to do for it? Why, nothing, boys. Nothing at all besides lead a clean and healthy life. That was the offer, and I took it. Mr. and Mrs. Henry Vogler of Arawak, Michigan, took me in. I speak their names with reverence. For five years, I ate at their table, slept in their bed, worked at their sides. Shall I say they treated me as a son? Faint praise indeed. For think of the way my own parents treated me. I don't blame them. I don't judge. Judge not, says the Lord, lest ye be judged. Vengeance is mine, he says. But he also tells us to separate the goats from the sheep. I don't blame my parents. I know in their own way they wanted to do good. But how can a man do good sunk in superstition's mire? Born of a degenerate race, weaned in an idolatrous church, reared in the ways of sloth and vice, how can he know the light? 
I myself narrowly escaped. I myself was doomed to mature, to rot before I ripened in the slack morals of a backward nation, not worthy to take root in good American soil. Cut and run, dally with the girls, drink with the boys through half the night, and never worry where your next meal's coming from. That was the life, boys. That was the life. But I was rescued. I was plucked in time, brought to an honest, Christ-centered home and a real American way of life. Mr. and Mrs. Vogler put that iron into my spine. By the time I left their tender care, I was a new man. I had over a hundred dollars to my name, saved for many odd jobs that Mr. Vogler took for me. I learned from him to seize the moment and profit where I could. And for Mrs. Vogler and her closest friend, our minister, I learned the stern but bracing tenets of our faith. Learned them so well, my brothers, that I myself began to preach the word, and so was brought to the attention of no less a man than our congressman, a representative in the Congress of the United States. Yes, a man like that took notice of me. And so I secured the place I now occupy as a student of divinity at Yale College in Connecticut. I hold my head high and know, wherever I tread amidst those ivy-covered halls, my fellow classmates can point to me and say, there, there goes an orphan boy. This is my story. And now, what will your story be? Will it be a slow decline into the criminality, madness, and ape-like carnality of our natural earthly parents? Or will it be rebirth? Will you too seize the moment? This very week, another happy band will depart for the West thanks to the Orphan's Aid Society. Will you be in that band? Will you accept the fairest shake a boy ever got? The choice lies before you. Say yes. And join me on the road west, on the Christian path to purity, patriotism, and prosperity. I thank you. Vito woke up when the hymn began. <laughs> the wheat-headed orator was done, he saw. His speech had registered as nothing more than big, funny words and scraps of dreams. No matter. What counted, Vito knew, was the society's wish for all the boys to be like this one sitting with his feet locked into the rungs of his chair, smiling and singing with such forced joy that his neck cord stuck out against his collar. They wanted Vito to be like him, and so the next day they let him know he really wanted to live in Kansas. He and two dozen other boys, subtracted from New York's dangerous classes, spent their final night in the hall. On Tuesday they took a trip to the courthouse and the station, huddling together in trams and gloomy chambers as if they liked each other. First they were a mass of coarse gray cloth and jostling limbs. Then they were straightened into rows of passengers in the crowded hall. And then Vito was by himself, shut into a railroad car with fifty strangers. It wasn't that different from his home, or the close-packed rooms in the hall. The train stopped and started. Night came and went. Still, Vito felt that the jolt in his stomach, the glare in his eyes, had never ceased, would never, could never, world without end. At Salina, they hustled him onto a trunk-line train, the dustiest, closest he'd been in yet. His damp, grimy color clung to his nape. Salesmen and merchants snored on all sides. Squeezed into the corner of his yellow cane seat, Vito turned his back.